Thanks, Dave. It's great to be with you guys uh, this morning. Um, almost wondered if people were going to show up with blankets this morning. It's like fall has arrived out of nowhere. Um, just wanted to tell you a quick story uh, of my uh, kind of my life. Uh, I'm going to do that in two minutes or less. Uh, I was uh, my life began with a, a pretty big storm. At one year old, my parents uh, decided to divorce, and so I was left uh, in a single-parent home. Uh, my mom raised four of us. Um, my dad was, was present. It was, a, it was kind of the best situation you could have in a divorce situation, but it began with kind of a storm, and then, um, and then later on, God took me down into that death, but he brought resurrection. At the age of 10, 11 years old, I can remember uh, having this deep conviction of sin in my heart and, uh, and being given an invitation uh, week after week to receive Christ. And, and my mom was very instrumental in that and kind of said, hey, Robert, don't you want to go down front? Don't you want to go down front? We were in a Baptist church and over and over week after week. And finally, I was like, I gotta get my mom off my back. We're going down front. So, uh, uh, but there really was the Lord was doing something in my heart then, uh, and so He brought, you know, ten years later, out of a, a death, He brought resurrection and gave me new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then, uh, when I, in 1989, my junior year of high school, I went to a Young Life camp in Frontier Ranch, Colorado. I heard the gospel again. Uh, God opened my heart in new ways, uh, kind of a renewed love for the gospel, for what Jesus had done for me. So it was then that I really fell in love with the gospel. So then a few years later, uh, God brought another storm into my life. My wife and I married, and uh, in the year 2000, we lost our first daughter, Emily. Uh, to congenital heart defects at about three and a half months old. And so is this death again. Uh, so there's this repeated thing of, of death and resurrection. And, and I know Jimmy's going to get into that when we get into the book of Philippians. I'm looking forward to that. And then in, in the year, um, you know, since then, he brought many resurrections because we have four beautiful, healthy children now. And, and in the year... 2015, God did another really cool resurrection, whereas before I had kind of fallen in love with what Jesus had done for me, in 2015 I began to fall in love with the person of Jesus who had done these great things. And I say those, I give you those quick little pictures, um, because at, at 43 years old I had fallen in love with the person of Jesus. And it's a quick testimony, right? A two-minute testimony. Uh, because I want to read you this story, this really uh, incredible story of compassion for the captive. Uh, this beautiful story out of Luke chapter 8. So if you will uh, stand with me as we read this passage together in Luke chapter 8. And I'm going to pause in the middle of it and add a couple verses from Mark's version just to fill in the narrative a little bit. Uh, so this is God's word out of Luke chapter 8. 
Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him, and he, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be, given by, be driven by the demons into the desert. And then Mark adds, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, bruising or cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Back to Luke, verse 30, Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them in, enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told, and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to part from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned, and the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Amen. You may be seated. So, liberty for the captive. Just to, just to set the scene of this just a little bit, the, the Gerasenes um, were, were kind of a, a place that was east of the Sea of Galilee. It is believed that some, by some scholars, that this was actually a night event. This is an amazing story, right? I mean, I almost entitled this, this, uh, this, ser- this sermon, Flying Pigs, just because you know, it's just a profound story. And so here we are, it's a, it's, it could be a night event which adds to the drama of the story and the kind of this fear-filled scene. And about 15 minutes south of where they believe this happened, there is still today a steep cliff uh, where they believe that it you know, ends in the shore at the Sea of the Galilee. And it's, this whole area is kind of a rocky limestone area with caves and caverns. It's where a perfect place for them to bury their dead. And the Jewish belief in those days was that the dead lived among, or the evil spirits lived among the tombs where the dead were buried. 
And so you have kind of that whole physical setting and belief of the Jews in the day. But before we get too caught up in this whole idea of what in the world is this demon possession, um, I want us to, first of all, take some time because kind of our first reaction in really graphic stories like this is, is to kind of look at the, the demon-possessed man and just call him a crazy man and kind of shift our focus to what miraculous thing Jesus did. But before we judge, it's always important to incarnate. I think, you know, many of us today in our culture, right, is it's first judge and then incarnate, or it's judge and never incarnate. Um, so what does it look like to incarnate with this man? Um, what do we know about him? Well, here's what we know just from the story. First of all, he's demon-possessed. We're not going to get too distracted with that yet. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, he's, he has no clothes. He's living among the tombs. He has a troubled mind. He's been seized and chained up. He's, he's a danger to others, and he's a danger to himself. He's kept under guard. He lives in solitary places, so he's alone all the time. He's bruising and cutting himself with, himself with stones. The man's likely suicidal. And he's lost all his relationships. And incarnate with this man for a moment. Don't view him as like this, because it is really, honestly, it's almost like a horror film. Like as you, if this were be to put into a movie, this would be like a really, really pretty intense scene. But think about the man, this demon-possessed man, this crazy man for a moment, who comes screaming down the field, has no clothes on, is bruised and cut. He's been all alone. He's got chains that have been broken hanging off of him as he's running towards Jesus. He's got demons screaming in his mind and in his heart and his soul. He's just, he is just undone. And everything around him, he's destroyed every relationship that he's ever been in. He has no friends and he's all alone. He's got a trail of destruction around him. Some people would say that this man, like as we see him, he's, he's unhelpable. Right? This man would be locked up at Moccasin Bend. We would consider him irredeemable. We would consider him probably some from whom we would hide our faces and run away from. I don't, I don't want, I want us to incarnate with him, but I don't want to also minimize the impact, the real impact of perhaps some of you who your lives have been impacted by mental illness. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's your own life. And there's kind of this train wreck of relationships that it's created. It's, there's a lot of disorder. There's a lot of hurt involved. 
So by incarnating with this man, I don't, I'm not minimizing the reality that this man has probably likely hurt a lot of people. They've been victims of mental disorder, victims of a man who's possessed by demons. So this man, what might he think of himself? I wonder what he's thinking about himself. I would say there's, it could probably be summed up if he had one moment of clarity in his mind that seems to be racked by mental disorder, by demons, by everything we could have imagined. The condition of this man, if he had one moment where he could actually think clearly about himself, one word would likely come to mind, and that would be hopeless. So, this is the kind of man that's charging at Jesus. There's loud shouting. There's legitimately, what would you do in this situation? How would you react in this situation? I would probably uh, likely run for the hills. It's interesting, the narrative doesn't give us any, any reaction to what the disciples might be doing. The scene is, is full of chaos the disciples were likely just in the boat still, frozen with fear. Jesus had actually just calmed a storm. So he'd taken a chaotic creation moment and brought peace to it. And here he's taking a, a chaotic moment in the man's life and he's going to bring peace to it. He's the God who brings order out of chaos. So have you guys, have you ever had a friend or someone struggling with something that you just didn't know how to respond to? Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety. Guys, maybe it's, or girls, maybe it's a, a, a friend uh, who's ADHD and they, they just won't slow down long enough for you to have a conversation with them. Uh, maybe it's an addiction. Girls, maybe it's a, somebody with an eating disorder. And you just don't know, where do I begin in all this? Our first response is usually to kind of think logically because these things are outside of what we have wisdom on. We want to fix the problem and um, kind of rationalize it or, or say, kind of, hey, go go do this or that, and it'll, it'll be fixed, and we can feel like we've helped our friend, but the trouble is, with it is that often the solutions we have, we, we want quick fixes because it keeps a distance between us and those who are hurting. And so we, we distance ourselves, and then this is even more true when our friends have those mental health issues and those struggles because we don't understand them, so we're a little bit scared to enter into them, because they really are a long haul. So in this case, you know, Luke calls this man a demon-possessed man. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unwrapping that, because it's actually a pretty deep mystery. There, it seems that demon possession was something that was really heightened in the time of, uh, of the incarnation of, of God in the person of Jesus, that here in the midst of this, that demon possession rise, the spirits are against 
uh, the incarnate son who is there. Um, but it's important to know, and I want you to hear, hear me say this very clearly. It is really important for us to know that if you are in Christ, that you cannot be possessed by a demon. The spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you. And it is impossible for a demon to come into someone who possesses the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing I want to just lay down for you. The second thing is we know that because of the ease with which Jesus, it's evidenced here really, the ease with which Jesus cast out this demon. And I know some of you are looking at me like I'm a two-headed monster because we're talking about demon possession in the year 2020. And we don't see or categorize those things uh, in those ways. But Jesus has absolute authority over this spirit. So if you're in Christ, you cannot be possessed by a demon. Secondly, it's important to remember that there is the reality of the spiritual forces of the devil and his minions that really and truly are at work right now in our present age. I think one of the ways in which he's working right now is the spirit of this age. Uh, maybe it's the spirit of age, uh, this age that's distraction, right? That, have you ever thought about the fact that perhaps... Um, I read an article this week that, or last week that was really helpful. I may get Nathan to post it or send it to you guys. But it just talked about, you know, if all the, of all the technology and all the things that we have, all the 24-hour news coverage, all the, everything we have, um, could it be that we're actually not made to bear all that news because we're not omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, could it be that we just need to cut it off for a little while? Anyhow, part of this is a conviction I have that I just don't think we're, I just don't think we're made to handle um, a tragic story that happens in India, uh, a, a virus that is wrecking the world on top of the daily, incessant political turmoil in our country, on top of what stock markets and everything else. I mean, do we really think that we're made to handle all of that? And I think media makes us think that we are. And I think that's part of the problem of why we're running into so much struggle and depression and anxiety in the, these times because we're not made to handle those. God can handle the weight of the pandemic. I think it's why Jesus says if uh, today has enough troubles of, it own, of its own. I mean, think about your own life for a moment and the circles with which you're in. I could just... I could name off for you, but for the sake of privacy, I'm not going to, but I can name off for you just in my own little sphere, um, marriages that are falling apart of people that I love, difficulties in relationship, 
sickness and health issues that are waning, personal issues I'm dealing with in my own family and my own life. Like the day has enough trouble of its own. Do, do I really think I can take the evil one, the spirit of the age that says, take all the distraction and be distracted by all the 24-7 coverage so that you won't think about things that are above and you won't think that I'm the king in charge and working in all this. Could that be the spirit of the age? Right? In uh, Ephesians, Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All of this should not drive us to fear, but it should drive us to faith. We should be putting our trust in the powerful Jesus who is the king who conquers demons and brings order out of chaos. I'll get more to that in a minute, but I wanted to read you this, this paragraph by a friend of mine named Liz Edgington and who's here in Chattanooga. She says this about the struggles of mental health. Mental health struggles are often a long game. They're not quickly fixed by anything, whether that's prayer, counseling, medication, or a combination of all of the above. When we enter into our friend's story and show compassion, we have to die to our need to fix and understand them in order to, bring to, bring toward, to move toward them. But that is what it means to join in the death of Jesus's believers. It can be a real privilege to walk the long road of mental illness with a friend while leaning on Jesus to care for them in ways we can't and to bear the burden of their pain with them. Entering in to the story of others. So how can we care for those who struggle, who struggles with us are hard to understand? How do we enter into those really difficult things well, let's, let's learn just for a minute from Jesus. I've learned this just recently in my life. I want to know how to do life. Then I should probably look at the guy who did it perfectly, Jesus himself. Uh, seems like a no-brainer, uh, but I've just learned it. Um, so what, is, what does Jesus do that he often does in situations like this? As I was reading the passage, I just get choked up with this. I mean, think about, the, think about the situation again. And Jesus sees this man. He's absolutely nuts. He's running at him. He's crazy and filled with all this turmoil. And Jesus is this calm, centered presence. And he just says, what is your name? One scholar says he said this with infinite tenderness. What is your name? He treats this demonized man as an image bearer who's worthy of his attention, who's worthy of his compassion, who's worthy of his time. He's treating him with kindness and respect. Who is this Jesus that treats people like this? He moves towards him. He, he's giving him dignity. 
He's recognizing the man as having worth that's tied to something else other than his disorders. Jesus reminds us that we are made to love those who we can't always understand. We're called to love those who we can't always understand. And through Jesus Christ, we can, we can make eye contact with them. We can use their name. We can move toward them with, with questions and kindness. In Christ, we can incarnate with others. I mean, how long do you think this, how long do you think it's been? Again, we're incarnating with this man. How long has it been since he's heard someone say, hey, what's your name? It's probably been a long time. And here's here's what's really deeply sad about the moment is the man's answer. He's so deeply troubled that he responds, Legion is my name. In other words, I've been sick so long. I've lost my identity. I have no idea who I am. And Legion is uh, a Roman Legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers and 120 horsemen. For the man or the demons is likely the case to claim that their name was Legion is to proclaim great power and display overwhelming odds. The man was lost, deeply troubled, had no identity. So how do we see Jesus respond in the midst of the chaos? Can't you just picture the scene? He's, there's, there's utter chaos all around him, and he's, he doesn't seem to be rattled. He's anchored in his father's love, and he trusts his father. He's able to be this compassionate, understanding, calm, steady presence this gentleness that moves into hard places. It's compassion. I mean, I, I know I'm painting the scene over and over again, but think about this for a moment. There's a crazy naked man running at him with chains falling off, with scars all over him. He's running at him. They scream with a loud voice. There's Thousands of demons in this man. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. And they beg him to be sent into the pigs. The demons flee into the pigs. The entire herd of pigs, scholars say, because of the name Legion, they put the number in the scriptures of about 2,000 pigs to hold all the demons that came out of this man. All these pigs go oinking, 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 running off the cliff, oinking all the way to their death. And what did it sound like? If you were there in the boat as one of the disciples, what are you hearing? Craziness. I mean, this is insane. What do 2,000 pigs sound like as they're flying off a cliff? Filled with demons, by the way. I mean, <laughs> you ever been to a pig farm? 
It's nasty. Pigs are nasty. And now they're possessed with demons flying off a cliff. I mean, the whole scene, do you just picture? I mean, this is insanity. This is craziness. It's just chaos all over the place. I wonder what Jesus is doing at the moment that this is happening. Do you think about all this chaos swirls? The pigs go off the cliff. They've come to their death. And then all of a sudden, there's just silence. They get out of the boat. Everything is nuts. Jesus enters the chaos. And there's a stillness. There's a peace. Is it any wonder that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace? And we, this is what's beautiful about the person of Jesus. It's not like he's, I mean, if, it, if that were me, I'd be freaking out. What is Jesus like as a person? It's this calm presence in the midst of evil. Evil is staring him in the face, and he's, unru- he's unhinged. He's not, hin- he's not unhinged. He's, he's not unraveled. He, he is just this calm, stable anchor in the midst of all of it. I wonder if Jesus was like marveling at the pigs as they went hurling off, and kind of doing this like victory dance. Take that one, Satan. If you know Jesus, what's he doing in this moment? What do you think he's doing? It's really cool. Because the next thing we know, the passage turns to this man who's clothed in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you know Jesus well enough, in every story of the Gospels, he stays focused on the person. He's unrelenting in his pursuit of love and compassion for people. He's unrelenting in his pursuit and his compassion for you. He never takes his eye off of you. Ever. He's deeply committed to you. He was deeply committed to this man to finish the redemption in this man's life. I mean, what... What has Jesus brought into this man's life? Think of all the things he's redeemed in this, this man. He's gone from being a demon-possessed man to being a spirit-filled man. He's gone from being naked to now being clothed. We don't really know what happened in there. Did Jesus go, hey, disciples, go get the guy some clothes. Give him a tunic off your back. He lived among the tombs, and now he has, Jesus tells him to go home. He was 
troubled in his mind. And the text says that now he has a sound mind, peacefully sitting at Jesus' feet. Previously, he'd been seized and chained up. And now Jesus is fulfilling Luke 4, and he's setting the captive free. Remember the scene? It's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4. They stand up, they hand Jesus the scroll. Jesus finds Isaiah 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to set liberty the captive. Jesus is is the great seeker. He's the great compassionate one, the the God of order. He's, He's taken this man who is a danger to others and a danger to himself, and what's he done? He's no longer a danger to others and himself. He's he's taken a man who was in literally living alone in a solitary places, running among the hills and the mountains, living among the dead, who probably thought, I just might as well be dead. Perhaps you've had those thoughts. Perhaps your friends who struggle with mental illness have those thoughts. What does Jesus do? He takes him from a very lonely place and he gives him a new community. He's been bruising himself with stones and and now he's sitting in orders at the feet of Jesus. He's perhaps been suicidal and now Jesus has given him mission. He's given not only life to him, but he tells him to go give life to other people. And now he's got the potential of restored relationships. All of this, Jesus is bringing redemption to this man in every sphere of his life. Satan's device is to dehumanize us. And Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is here to tell us that I've come to make you fully human again. And he's doing that in your life. He's doing that in this man's life of restoring the man's mind and the soul to give him a new identity and a new community. Have you met this kind of Jesus? This one that says, come to me and I will give you life. The one that Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It's a beautiful story at the end of this. What, there's two things that Jesus tells the man. Go home. Tell how much God has done for you. That's why I started with a brief testimony, because part of my challenge to you is perhaps today at lunch or sometime, maybe you just sit down, do your t- testimony, give it to your kids. How did God redeem you? Who is he to you? And do it in two minutes. All right, so your kids aren't going, oh, man, i got to hear the story again forever. Right, but to tell your testimony in two minutes. Will you today, he's, Jesus has come to set the captive free. 
Your, your testimony may be like mine. It's not near as dramatic as this man. Could you imagine the story he's going to tell? I mean, we're 2,000 years later. We're still telling it. Pretty amazing story. I doubt in 2,000 years somebody's going to be telling my story. But that doesn't mean it's any less significant. Because God is uh, the compassionate Jesus who's coming to redeem the story. So let me close with, with this thought. Because some of you are sitting there thinking, like I have this week, God, what happens when I've got mental illness close to me? And it just, you know, God, you're not showing up. You're not casting out into a herd of pigs and healing the situation, but I'm just living in the struggle of this and it's never going to go away. All right, Paul Miller talks about in prayer when we're, we're in between these two scenarios of here's reality down here. And we always have kind of this arc of hope that is up, up top of that. Like there's what we're hoping for and there's this reality to it. And we call kind of living in that kind of this desert. In other words, we're all honestly at some point in our lives just going, God, are you going to show up? Like are you going to bring healing in this situation? And what do we do in that desert time? I think it's the beauty of the desert time that we're actually beginning to enter in to God's story. It makes us more dependent. It it causes us to to go, man, is anybody is is there any relief coming? And what happens is it draws us into the heart of God, and then we become more dependent in the suffering, and we become so, so what happens is we start to transition, our hearts begin to pray differently, and it becomes God writing his story, not us forcing our story to be written. And so what happens is I actually start seeing these, these little miniature resurrections that God brings, and my hope and my reality in the midst of that desert, I begin to enter into God's story and be filled with wonder as to what he is going to do. And I find myself finding rest in that place because God is a God who brings order out of chaos, who brings resurrection from death. Sometimes that's in this life, but sometimes it's in the future and the not yet when Jesus returns. So I would encourage you to hunt for resurrection. Trust God with it. Tug on the hem of his garment. My daughter, Mary Catherine, is nine years old. And uh, as good nine-year-olds do, um, she probably doesn't do this as much as she used to. But she would come run up and, like, when she was younger, pull on... Rebecca and I just say, Daddy, Daddy, Mama, Mama, over and over and ask and ask and ask, right? Can you give me a snack? Can you give me this? Can you give me, right? Just asking over and over and just constant. All you parents know what that's like. Well, we have a, we have a heavenly father 
who never tires of you and I pulling on his garment and just asking over and over again. Run to him like a child. Keep pulling on his garment. God, intervene here. I've been praying for 20 years. I'm not giving up. I'm knocking on the door again. I'm pulling harder again. Because God promises that in the end, order will come out of all chaos. He will set all things new. And all those who are bound in prison will be set free. Will you run even today in those hard, really hard life relationships? Will you run to the Father and just keep pulling on the hem of his garment? Don't get sophisticated. Don't be too adult. Be a child. Run to Yahweh, Abba Father, and just keep begging. And then watch the story that he begins to unfold. And maybe you start tracking it in your life in a diary or a prayer journal. You go, wow, there's a little bit of a resurrection today. And it makes you long for ultimate resurrection that's going to come. So may we run to Jesus, the one who sets the captive free. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you take us who are captive to the spirit of this age. We're captive to our sin and you set us free. Thank you, Jesus, that you just come to us and you are so gentle, so kind. You're so patient. You're so loving and compassionate. Jesus, you often don't ask real complicated questions, but just really simple ones because you want to be part of our lives and you just say, what's your name? What's going on? What do you want? Thank you for your interest, your love, your friendship for all of us who are in bondage. May we find freedom in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.